And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Monday, July 31st, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, trade groups urge the administration to boost focus on identity in cybersecurity efforts. Plus, a leading military research unit celebrates a century of work. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, employees at the Transportation Security Administration just got a big fat raise, an historic one. Some airport screeners have seen their pay shoot up 31%. Now, this is the culmination of a long-standing effort to bring TSA salaries in line with those of the rest of the federal workforce. For more, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday spoke with one of the lawmakers who's long been pushing for TSA salaries, House Homeland Security Committee ranking member Benny Thompson. This has been a long struggle for us to get something of an adequate pay raise so that comparability and other things will equal other individuals in the federal workforce. Actually, it's been over 15 years uh, that we've been struggling to get to this point. We've had other moments when we've been close, but, you know, close only really counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. (laughs) So what we have with the uh, omnibus package that we passed last December, we included in there somewhere around a 25-30% increase for our TSOs and some other air marshals and other people uh, that they really need. You can't expect a labor force to be happy when they know they are underpaid. And if you underpay me, you can tell me all you want to, you appreciate me. But what I hear oftentimes, so well, I understand what you're saying, but you can show me better. So what we now have uh, is a significant pay increase for almost 50,000 employees within the TSA operation that desperately need it. Every week I go in and out of my local airport. You know, I see people getting up 4 o'clock, 4.30 in the morning, going to work. And as you know, for one period, they'd work four hours and go home and have to come back later. Well, we've seen all those challenges, and somehow they stuck. Now, I saw some people get, you know, a year in grade, and they transfer. Well, they transfer because there are other opportunities that put people on the GS schedule. They know exactly how much money they'll be making three years from now, four years from now. Unlike our TSOs, I could never get someone to fully explain to me what that pay scale for TSOs They're government employees. They ought to be paid like all other government employees. So I'm happy that we are now at a point where our TSOs and air marshals and canine handlers and a couple other groups within TSA will be paid like they should have been in the beginning. When you look back at the last 15 years and how we got to this point, why do you think it took so long and what changed that ultimately allowed it to get through within the last year? You know, as you know, after 9-11, we created TSA. We built the TSO component from the ground up. You know, that was a history that, well, the people who, you know, used to have what's called a rental cop doing the screening and passenger thing. And so that mindset somehow was still there when TSA was put together that, oh, 
this is just a menial minimum wage type job. Well, real quick, it became clear that if we're to keep passenger safety and security like we want it to be, then we're going to have to have professionals operating at the TSO level because they are the primary point of contact for every person that gets on a commercial airline. And so over time, uh, we made a lot of efforts to try to, to move it forward. And to be honest with you, we never had the wherewithal in the White House or in the Secretary's office or the Administrator's office to really step up on behalf of TSO. There are a lot of us who, from the beginning, said we have to pay these people more. But I can say that when Joe Biden became president, when Ali Mayorkas became secretary, and Petoskey became the administrator, the stars aligned. And so it no longer became just a budgetary issue, but it became more of the right thing to do. When you look at the morale, of our TSO, when you look at the historical turnover of our TSOs, then you knew we had a problem. In the review of the history of uh, TSOs, air marshals, and canine handlers, something had to be amiss. And the one thing when you would talk to people in those jobs, they would almost to the person say, we want to be paid the same as other federal employees. And that's not an unreasonable request, you know? And so we have some challenges. We have to make this a permanent process. All right. I wanted to touch on the challenges and outlook ahead. I know you have your fund, the TSA Act, filed, and the appropriations process has some potential hangups. What are you most concerned about going forward here in the near term about ensuring the pay increase continues into the future? Well, I just want to make sure that the $1.1 billion that it takes to cover this initiative for the entire fiscal year is put in the budget. That's like the most immediate consideration. And that's the least we can do for our workforce. I think if we would give the money in the latter part of July and take it back uh, the latter part of September, that would just be something I would not want on my legacy sheet, nor would I would expect any other member of Congress to want. I'm not aware of any federal employee getting a raid and, you know, two or three months later, taking it back. That is just uh, the height of irresponsibility on the part of Congress. So I'm looking forward to making this a permanent investment for our employees. I know that uh, the administrator of TSA agrees with me on this part. And so now we just have to go forward and, and put the money where Congress has expressed its interest. Now, long term, I've filed a fund, the TSA Act. And I think Congress has to look at all the options to ensure that these raises are, are permanent. So as it, the issue of increasing passenger security fees, that have really remained stagnant for a number of years. Inflation has gone up, airline tickets have gone up, but our fees are there. And that's why I introduced this act. Look, it would only cost $2 per ticket and indexing fee amounts for the future for us to fund this, this increase by 10 souls. Uh, as you know, the current legislation says that after certain costs are expended, 
the rest goes toward the deficit. So we can't really claw that back, but we can add the $2. And I think if the public understands where this money is going, I'm convinced there's broad-based support for it. So we're going to have to work it. Uh, I don't think the salary comparability scale for TSOs ought to be tied to the whims of Congress every year. And that's why we are trying to put a source of revenue to pay for the increase for TSOs. So I'm optimistic. It took a heavy lift to get us to where we are. Now, I have not heard a single member of Congress to say that I'm going to oppose leaving the raise in there. We are in the middle of the appropriation process right now. And so we'll have to see. House Homeland Security Committee ranking member and Mississippi Democrat Benny Thompson speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And Justin will join me in the next hour with more on this development. Check out his coverage at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, a leading military research unit celebrates a century of work. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. It was established in the steam power and rotary engine era, and it remains relevant in the nuclear and jet propulsion era. The Naval Research Laboratory recently marked 100 years in business and a history of helping U.S. naval forces keep their competitive advantage. We get more now from its director of research, Dr. Bruce Danley. Dr. Danley, good to have you with us. Uh, Good to be here, Tom. Thank you. And just a quick question out of curiosity, how long have you been with the labs? Well, I've been here since uh, 1995, so 27 and a half years or so. I came mid-career. My previous career was all at MIT in in the Massachusetts area. Oh, yes. I've run across the Smoot Bridge several times myself in (laughs) in recent years. Myself, I walked across it for four years in a row. All right. Well, let's get to the lab here and give us a sense of the scope of technologies and scientific areas that the lab concerns itself with. So the lab really, as the Department of Navy's corporate research laboratory, really services both the Navy and the Marine Corps, being the Naval Research Laboratory. And we cover everything from the seafloor up through the water column to the surface to the atmosphere and meteorology in the atmosphere up to even things happening with the sun and and the ionosphere in space, because all of those things have an impact on the operational naval forces. And we work technologies and understanding of the battle space environment really to support a wide range of Navy missions. And on the spectrum from basic scientific research all the way through to applied technology, say, where does the laboratory generally fall, would you say? So we are strongest in early basic and applied research, but that is not to say that we uh, don't also do advanced development and even some pushing of technology directly out to the fleet or in concert sometimes with our industry partners. So we do really the whole spectrum. I'd say that it really depends on the research division at the laboratory. We have 17 divisions and some are more centered on longer term basic research. Others are more centered on near-term engineering at higher TRL levels. And from an operational level, is most of the research done by staff scientists and researchers? Do you also have a grant program? And give us a sense of the balance of who's actually doing the work and under what types of funding channels. 
Right. So in the Navy, the responsibility for externally funding all the great work that goes on and all the innovation in universities and industry is that's the Office of Naval Research responsibility. The Naval Research Laboratory, though we report up to the Chief of Naval Research on the Secretariat side of the Navy, we actually are the in-house performers. So the researchers at NRL are the ones that are actually carrying out their research in our many labs and facilities. And they're, by and large, uh, all civilian employees of the Department of Navy, all scientists and engineers. We have about a thousand PhDs, which is just a little under half of all the PhDs in the Department of Navy. How do you avoid, say, potential duplication of effort from what's going on funded externally through the ONR and what the Naval Research Laboratory is doing? So we pay close attention to that. And in many cases, we end up collaborating with the outside partners that ONR is funding. ONR has what's called a portfolio council, which I have a a seat at with the ONR department heads. And we regularly meet, we meet every two weeks, and we work to ensure that there's complementary of effort and not duplication. And what about the demand signals? Does the Navy ever say, hey, we need to know more about this because helicopters and planes are having this particular function or we expect to do this type of mission? Or does it generate pretty much from what your own scientists understand to be the next frontier in a given domain? Well, it's really both. We wouldn't be doing our fundamental mission if we weren't innovating to the ideas that we come up with to solve Navy problems. So our recently uh, retired CO, Captain Petrovic, liked to quote a Henry Ford quote, and that is, if I had asked people what they needed, they would have said faster horses. And so by that, we expect the Navy to tell us, and we learn through the long careers that people spend in the Navy, what the real problem is, and then we innovate, not to make faster horses, but to come up with something new, like a car. We're speaking with Dr. Bruce Danley. He's Director of Research at the U.S. Naval Research Laboratory. And just out of curiosity, what are some of the big problems right now? What are the top concerns that research is being applied to? Oh, there's a whole range of research challenges and and also opportunities to improve technology to the benefit of the Navy. So a few examples. Let me start with corrosion, coatings, coatings uh, and, you know, paints for stopping corrosion on ships at sea. A huge amount of the cost of sustaining the fleet has to do with mitigating corrosion. And so we have a lot of efforts underway that develop new chemistries for new deck coatings that have been successful. But one of the Navy's destroyers is now mostly painted with a new NRL paint, which is showing significantly reduced workload on sailors for uh, repainting to stop corrosion. So that's one example. It's really a wide range of things. Ocean scientists, we spend a lot of time studying oceanography at our site uh, down in Stennis, Mississippi, our ocean sciences division, to try to understand the impact of ocean currents on sonar propagation, as another example. We work a lot on, on marine meteorology and even on ionospheric propagation effects, because that affects HF communications, for example, that the Navy depends on. So a wide range of things. It sounds like many of the research products that are coming out of the labs would have commercial and industrial application, like especially some of those new coatings, or for the shipping industry and the cruise industry, the idea of sonar and currents and all the meteorological learnings. So it certainly does, and we actually 
have a very active tech transfer program with U.S. companies. And the laboratory has a long history of patenting a lot of the work that comes out of here. The Department of Navy owns the patent, but NRL has a very good track record of patent licensing. In fact, there was a study by TechLink, which is a federal entity sponsored by the Department of Defense, on national economic impacts from DOD license agreements with U.S. industry over the past 20 years. And NRL, in that study, study came out in September of 22, basically attributed the total output of NRL for total economic-wide impact to be $2.3 billion over that 20-year time period. So we have a big impact with our patent portfolio that get licensed by a lot of really the companies who become partners in taking the patented inventions at the lab and then commercializing them, both for DOD use and for the commercial use. And what about adaption of technologies that might not be in the Navy's possession but could potentially benefit it? I'll give you an example I just heard about from another interview. There's a certain type of submarine made in Europe, I think in Sweden, that is neither nuclear nor diesel, so therefore it uses oxygen-burning systems, but they can stay underwater for weeks not as long as a nuclear sub, but way longer than a conventionally diesel-powered sub. That kind of thing that could be adapted so the Navy could buy 100 cheap submarines that can stay under for a while, this kind of thing. Do you get involved in reverse technology transfer ever? So we certainly get asked questions regularly as a corporate lab of the Navy about technologies that people are trying to understand that we see our foreign partners develop. But the Navy also has naval warfare centers which are also part of our innovation ecosystem in the Department of Navy. So when you get to propulsion in the actual you know, shipbuilding, that tends to be the Naval Surface Warfare Centers, of which NSWC Carter Rock is a good example. So we work closely with the Naval Warfare Centers to analyze some of the technologies where it's closer to uh, less research, but closer to something that's uh, operational. And another question, getting back to the idea of, you know, avoiding overlap, and that is we've got NOAA, we've got different elements of the Commerce Department, the Agriculture Department, even to some extent, the uh, National Science Foundation. There's a lot of research going on throughout the government internally and externally. How do you make sure that there's not something already done outside of the Navy enterprise altogether that might be useful? Actually, our research workforce are card-carrying scientists and engineers themselves, and they stay plugged in to the international scientific community through attending scientific conferences, keeping a pulse on what's happening at universities, and spinning off ideas from that and contributing their own ideas into that international innovation ecosystem. That's the bread and butter of the scientific community to do that. And what is your own particular scientific background and expertise? So originally got my doctorate degree in quantum electronics at MIT way back in 1983, then evolved into uh, working on high power RF systems before I came to the Naval Research Lab in 95. Then I worked on electronics. I ran radar division for nine years here and have been the director of research for six and a half. Yeah, that's an interesting point. There is always plenty more to learn on even technologies that have been well established for decades. Absolutely. You know, a lot of scientific advance, occasionally it's breakthroughs and new ideas, but a lot of it is building on the ideas of other people. And that's why collaboration across many different communities and even open literature is so important. And NRL publishes eight or 900 publications a year in the open literature because 
exchange of scientific ideas, basic scientific research is so important, not only for us, but all of the, the innovation ecosystem. Dr. Bruce Danley is Director of Research at the U.S. Naval Research Laboratory, now celebrating 100 years of work. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Sail with the Federal Drive. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, Congress recesses with its federal budget still under construction. But first, trade groups urge the administration to boost focus on identity in that new cybersecurity policy. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. A bevy of trade groups urges the Biden administration to sharpen its cybersecurity strategy focus on identity and identity-related crime. They send three suggestions to top White House cyber officials, and we get details now from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce Vice President Jordan Crenshaw. Jordan, good to have you back. Tom, as always, great to be with you and uh, great to talk about this important topic. All right. So you have written to a couple of people in particular that we should point out. They are Kemba Walden. She's the acting director of the Office of the National Cyber Director and Ann Newberger, deputy national security advisor for cyber and emerging technology. They are a lot of the authorship behind the strategy, which has been well received, I think, across industry. What was the reaction of the signatures to this letter and what do you think was missing from the strategy or needed to be beefed up, let's say? Tom, we joined a coalition of folks who thought it was important to get the messaging out about the need to even further bolster identity management in the federal government. And, you know, we've been encouraged so far about what the administration has done and even activity on Congress to actually put forward and advance identity technology. But at the same time, there is an urgent need to really bolster uh, digital identity. And for example, during the first year of the COVID pandemic, for example, the FTC, in fact, saw over a 2,900 percent increase in reports of identity theft that were linked to government benefits. And it really is an urgent need on the part of the federal government to really shore up digital identity policy. But, you know, a few things I think we recommended overall. We really think that the White House should launch a task force to accelerate the availability of tools that can guard against identity-related cybercrime. The second is NIST really needs to have a prioritization of work on identity management and uh, attribute validation services with a focus on developing identity, identity framework of standards and best practices. And then finally, you know, an effort needs really to be launched to document the ways that investments in digital identity infrastructure can generate budget savings. You know, as we're talking about the importance of being uh, good financial stewards and the budget talks that we had, but also as we look at government modernization, the need to fund that, it's critically important that it's made known that these key investments can actually save government in the long run. And do you think that the identity strengthening, the ability to verify that a person is who they say they are when they go to a site, this is something for people simply accessing government services? Or do you see this as a need throughout the economy that the government can help bolster? So when people go to Amazon, you know, they are who they say they are. So there is a robust ecosystem here. There's a good identity management technology that can prevent fraud on the private sector level, but at the same time, that same kind of technology can be used on the federal side to prevent things like uh, unemployment insurance fraud and, and other types of fraud that we saw during the COVID-19 pandemic. 
and really, I think some of the things that we want to make sure is that there's a development of a plan of action for federal, state, and local agencies to close the gap between physical and digital identity credentials in a way that protects privacy and, and prioritizes equity and accessibility. You know, we also need to determine in that task force whether there are restrictions already in place uh, that inhibit the ability of agencies to offer new digital identity solutions. We also need to identify whether funding or other resources will be needed to support that. And I think that the key answer, I think, in a lot of the government modernization question is yes. We also need to look at ways to ensure that the emergence of robust digital identity solutions don't exacerbate existing inequities. And also, finally, uh, we need to identify the role that industry solutions can actually play, as we talked a little bit about, to enhance government security and technology. So it's a good mix of competition between private sector and public sector working together to get this issue solved. We're speaking with Jordan Crenshaw. He's a vice president at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. It sounds like maybe some beefing up of login.gov. That's kind of getting a little bit long in the tooth. More and more agencies are using it, but that's not even a universal mechanism at this point. Is that part of the thinking? I think when it comes to government modernization, the view of the business community is we need an all-of-the-above approach. Uh, We think the private sector can provide solutions. We think the government also has a role in developing the technologies that can be used for identity management. But we think that the more offerings that are out there, the better. Competition is a good thing. And for that reason, this is why we actually further encourage the administration to really more fulsomely take a look at this issue even more uh, to ensure we're getting it right, uh, both on login.gov, but also the other private sector solutions that are out there, too. And somehow a lot of these solutions always come around to the need to get rid of the password and have some kind of a non-repudiatable token that's in your phone or something like that. Is that part of this thinking also? Yeah, one of the options is things like digital wallets. You know, one of the other areas is we talked about NIST work on identity management and the standards there. The letter that we actually uh, put forward really advocates the White House direct NIST to more specifically address language and its strategy concerning mobile driver's licenses, for example. And so those could be used for a variety of different things, such as validating your identity for benefits, or, you know, even if you're going to go to an ABC store, for example, and validate your identity by a bottle of wine. You know, I think that there are solutions there that are in place that can be used from a mobile wallet perspective that would be helpful as well. Because mobile wallet can be a little scary to people because that's like one step removed from digital currency. And we know that there have been hacks of mobile wallets and that there have been billions and billions of theft by North Korea and other actors like that of cryptocurrency. And so it seems like this is something that has to be never set and forget. Yeah, I think that's why it's important. I think we've learned our lessons from the past when you don't have the proper verification tools in place from the pandemic, but also I think you're absolutely right. We're going to have to have a dynamic approach to identity management going forward. And I think that's why it's so important that the White House and even Congress continue to look at this issue proactively, because you're right, you know, the uh, nations out there like North Korea are not slowing down in their attempts to hack. We need to actually have uh, proper identity management and have it evolve as we continue to move forward. And a lot of these solutions like digital driver's licenses and so forth involve the states. And as we've seen with Real ID program, it took 20 years. And I think even then it's not everywhere, not universal, not finished yet. So there's some adaptability and some speed that has to come into this too. Fair? Just another reason why it's important that this get prioritized, because if it's not, we're not going to see the benefits. 
you know, this is once again, I think another great example of why government needs to modernize and why government needs to really look at different solutions for a variety of perspectives. You know, I think we've looked at issues like regulatory impediments that are out there. And there's legislation, for example, now like the Secure Notarization Act that would enable digital signatures to be done. And that's something that hasn't really been enabled in the past. And that's that's the law catching up with technology. I mean, we're supportive of that legislation. Uh, but at the same time, I think government needs to continue to recognize it needs to bolster things like the Technology Modernization Fund, which in the long run will save money for government as we move forward. Jordan Crenshaw is a vice president of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Thanks so much for joining me. Tom, as always, it's great. Thanks again. And we'll post this interview along with a link to that cyber strategy letter at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, Congress recesses with its federal budget still under construction. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. They haven't done nothing, but the House and Senate have a lot more to do for any chance of a budget by September 30th. For one thing, the two chambers are $100 billion apart. This as they head out for a long August recess. We get the outlook from Bloomberg Government Congress reporter Jack Fitzpatrick. Jack, good to have you with us. Thank you for having me. Rundown, you've done pretty extensive reporting on the budget as it stands right now as they do go home and uh, face the heat in one in more than one way, I suppose. What do things look like right now? Things do not look great if you want them to actually fund the government and have a full deal by September 30th. Does that mean there's a huge risk of a shutdown or are we talking about a long stopgap measure? It's a little hard to predict right now. There are some conservatives who are kind of itching for a shutdown. Bob Good from Virginia said a a few days ago, you know, a lot of people wouldn't even miss anything we do here. If we shut the government down, we shouldn't be afraid of that as leverage. That's not exactly the Republican leadership line. But there's a big gap between the House and Senate, and it's it's actually growing. They had the bipartisan debt limit deal that set some spending levels. You've got House conservatives who want to go well under it. Senators in both parties want to go over it and use emergency spending and cap exempt funds to spend more than the what was outlined in that deal. Uh, so right now there's about a $100 billion gr- gap and possibly growing between the two chambers. So it's going to be tough to actually strike a deal by September 30th. Right. And they don't come back till Labor Day now, correct? After Labor Day, the Senate comes back on the 5th of September. The House doesn't actually come back until the 12th. So that makes it very, very difficult to hold very many floor votes, and they've just gotten started on that. The House voted on one of the 12 appropriations bills and passed it. They had attempted to get to a second, but there was uh, there were some disagreements on that, highlighting how difficult it is to do any of this. The Senate has not taken any floor votes yet, but they have bipartisan support and committee. So that's that's not a lot of legislative days in September for them to do this. Steve Scalise did say they can talk between the House and Senate over the August recess. But before they have very many floor votes on their own bills, that there's not a lot of progress to be made. Yeah, that's kind of discouraging in a way, because when you look at, say, contrast that with the National Defense Authorization Act, which is a lot of policy, that's nowhere near reconciliation because the Senate version you know, specifically leaves out things that the House version has with respect to paying 
service members to go get abortions or covering their transportation costs, this kind of thing. But in the appropriations bills, I mean, it's all dollars, and usually they can come closer on that one. You would think there are a lot of policy writer fights, especially in the House, uh, in the appropriations bills. Um, One of the reasons uh, that they tried but failed to bring up the funding bill for agriculture and the FDA in the House was uh, not only the funding levels, but a rider to block the availability of mifepristone, which is used as part of the uh, abortion pill process. So even in the government funding debate, it you might think it's all dollars. That is more the case in the Senate, but in the House, the abortion politics issues have really gotten themselves in there. Some immigration issues. There's a, a variety of policy debates that a lot of the conservative members in the House want to have through those government funding bills because that's a must-pass bill. And by the way, are there any authorizations up? Remind us of what needs to be done there, which is has some relation to keeping the government going, asides from the NDAA. Yes. So the NDAA is a big one. The FAA is another one. Um, There are a variety of authorizations that end September 30th that will probably get packaged together in a lot of the time they do this in one large bill. If it's a continuing resolution to fund the government on September 30th, they'll do the national flood insurance program extension, the farm bill extension. They're, they're not, there really hasn't even been that much of a conversation about actually getting to the, the final stages of the farm bill. That's probably more next year. So there, there will probably be a large legislative package of extending any authorizations that they, they don't finish on September 30th. And there will be a lot of actual debates to be had on those bills in, the, in the December or even early next year. We're speaking with Jack Fitzpatrick, Congress reporter for Bloomberg Government. A sticky issue that's been going on and on is this hold on military flag officer promotions that has been placed by Senator Tuberville. There was even a rumor last week that it had been all taken care of and everyone was confirmed by unanimous consent. Don't know how that got out, but what is the prospect for all of that? I think a sticky issue is the correct way to describe it. There have been floor speeches by other senators uh, very angry with him on the Democratic side, uh, certainly. Uh, Right now, you know, they got through the whole defense authorization process without resolving his hold on those uh, promotions. So there's, there's not a very clear outlook. And there isn't really much of an end in sight. It's more a matter at this point, it seems still of, of political pressure and seeing if he if Democrats can get him to change his mind or, or not. But uh, it, it is one of the stickier issues on Capitol Hill right now. And there are some other executive openings. The Federal Communications Commission chair, I don't think that vote ever happened, that confirmation vote. And then the FAA, we mentioned, needs to be reauthorized, but it also needs a permanent head. Yes, uh, that that adds a lot to a to do list for the Senate. Uh, Again, as I mentioned, without a ton of legislative days coming back in September, they come back September 5th uh, with a lot to do. As I mentioned, they they also want to use that floor time to vote on these appropriations bills that they've marked up but have not had floor votes on. So there is going to need to be a, a real rush of, uh, I guess, a lot of pressure on Senate floor time to see how many confirmation votes they can have, 
what authorizations can be quickly and easily packaged together. And it does matter if they decide they actually want to vote on individual appropriations bills or if they do a couple large packages, because there's only so much time in September to have that many floor votes, especially in the slow moving Senate. And on the human side of the Senate, we have known for some time that there is an elderly senator on the Democratic side, Dianne Feinstein, which is tough thing to watch given the illustrious history that she's had in her life and what she's done in California and in the Senate. And now Mitch McConnell looking increasingly frail on the Republican side. Is there, I mean, do you get the sense the sides are saying to one another, well, we'll move ours on if you move yours on? I, there, there doesn't seem to be any agreement on how to move forward with the personnel in the Senate. And it's a really tough time to have these conversations in a 51-49 Senate, because if there are absences, which we've seen with other members, John Fetterman's health issues, if anybody's absent, obviously, when COVID was at its peak, having such a close Senate, this it makes it very difficult to operate the Senate. The, the issues with Senator Feinstein uh, have not gone away. She uh, was supposed to vote in a markup on a bill when they called her name. She started reading a statement. Uh, it was a, a, a bit of an embarrassing moment, to be honest, where they had to tell her just say I in order to vote on these spending bills in the markup. There are concerns because there hasn't been an explanation about Senator McConnell and why he froze at the press conference. Now, he did managed to come back uh, a, a little bit later and was answering questions, clearly aware of what was going on. But that's something that his staff has not answered questions about what exactly happened. Uh, so, it, you know, this is sort of a byproduct of a very close Senate where absences or health issues are tough to work around and a lot of older members just kind of pushing through. Jack Fitzpatrick is Congress reporter for Bloomberg Government. As always, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. 57 past the hour. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and The Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Temin. Drive with Tom Temin. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Monday, July 31st, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of the Federal Drive, trade groups urge the administration to boost focus on identity in cybersecurity efforts. Plus, a leading military research unit celebrates a century of work. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. 
But first, Transportation Security Administration employees woke up to a pay increase just over a week ago, a big one. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me with the details and the effect they're having at TSA. And tell us about the new scales that were just instituted here. What's going on exactly, Justin? Yeah, the new pay scale instituted by TSA this month is really intended to mirror the general schedule wage system used across much of the rest of the federal government. Uh, A lot of wages at TSA were as high as 20 to 30 percent lower than the general schedule wage system when you looked at how people were paid based on how long they'd been at the agency and so on and so forth. And so these increases were actually funded uh, under the Homeland Security Appropriations Bill passed by Congress late last year. The reason that they're just now hitting paychecks is because that bill only funded the increases for the fourth quarter of fiscal 2023, which of course started in July. And so late last week week and into the weekend, TSA employees started receiving their first paychecks under this new pay system. As I mentioned, some received as high as a 31% pay boost. And, And, you know, officials kind of celebrated this at Ronald Reagan Washington National Airport last week during a press conference. This has been many years in the making for some folks. We talked to Benny Thompson earlier in the program, who's who's been on this issue for a while. And finally, I guess for TSA employees now, they can say that they're on the same level sure. in, in some ways compared to the rest of the federal government. Now, is this only for the transportation security officers or were the pay scales low across the board, like for procurement and information technology and public affairs and policy people? So this was across the board, but the biggest effect was for the transportation security officers because they really were the ones who were stalling out in TSA's previous pay ban system. It's still a pay ban system, but now they've changed how it works with this new funding so that folks kind of move up the pay ban system more in line with their experience and their performance at the agency. And just a week in, they are already noticing a recruitment effect from this. Yeah, well, the fact that these were announced with the appropriations bill back last December uh, has already had an effect ahead of these th- this pay increase really taking uh, being implemented. The attrition rate for TSA was 19.1% in fiscal 2022. That's pretty high. But since last October, TSA says it has seen a 61% reduction in attrition. Uh, That's so far in fiscal 2023. So uh, they've seen a 30% increase in the number of job applicants as well, who who obviously know that these pay increases are coming. TSA Administrator David Pekoski discussed uh, these pay raises and, and how they've really helped the agency out at a crucial time during this press event at the Reagan National Airport last week. If you think of what's happening right now in the United States with the recovery from the pandemic and the increase in air travel, We would not have been able to be as successful as we have been this summer with record volumes of passenger travel through this airport, through BWI, through Dulles, through airports throughout the country, were it not uh, for this pay increase. So what that means is we retain talent, we don't have to recruit and retrain and spend the funds to do that, and that increases our overall experience base uh, across the agency. And what about the other employees that are not TSOs? Because when Homeland Security was established, the TSO was kind of a new creature, a new job in the federal government. But the other jobs at TSA are the standard types of jobs that all the other DHS components already had. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think federal air marshals were expected to see as high as a 20 percent pay increase. Uh, You know, this also affected jobs 
ranging from canine handlers, explosives specialists, behavior detection specialists, cybersecurity experts. Cybersecurity has become a big thing at TSA lately. And then intelligence analysts, uh, among others, really affected everyone except for the folks who are executives and that's in that senior executive service at TSA and some of the the, the high-ranking headquarters jobs. Uh, but as we mentioned before, the changes were most dramatic for the TSO screeners, those 50,000 or so folks who make up the bulk of the TSA workforce and who are in blue uh, at the airport screening lines. And so I spoke to David Pekoski, TSA's administrator, after this press event at the airport last week. He talked about how, you know, if you've been at the agency for 20 years, for example, you probably saw that pay raise north of 30% because that's where people were really st stalling out in the middle of their careers as TSOs. For younger employees or new TSA employees, it's generally more of a 5 to 10% increase at first. But the key here is that they know that they can move up through TSA's pay bands much more quickly and get more pay as they move along. That gives you automatic career progression. We, what we find in Customs and Border Protection has a very similar program. What we find is once an employee joins TSA, if they spend more than a year with TSA, they're likely to spend many, many more years after that. You know, we need to make sure that we show a path for increased responsibility and increased pay that goes along with it. Then it comes back to the question of appropriations. As you mentioned, and Benny Thompson mentioned, the appropriation has got to be there for the ensuing years if they're going to be able to, you know, not be in a situation where they are, have an unfunded thing they're trying to spend on. Yeah, there's a few complications with the appropriations process and this TSA pay increase going forward. You know, the first is is that the appropriations process right now is pretty strained. Uh, you, ha you have these new budget caps. You, you have some conservative House Republicans trying to roll that back, basically put, put even more budget caps in place going forward. So there's, there's just a disagreement around generally where the appropriations bill should land in general, including Homeland Security. And then in the House Appropriations Committee's version of the fiscal 2024 spending bill, they actually strip back the pay raises for non-TSO employees. So for the, the canine handlers, federal air marshals, cybersecurity experts and others that we talked about earlier, they, they would not, that bill would not continue the pay raises for those non-TSO employees. So there's some things that need to be worked out here over, you know, the next two months before the end of fiscal 2023. And then if there's a continuing resolution uh, into the fall and winter timeframe. And that's on the pay side. And TSA is also looking at a collective bargaining agreement this year on everything but the pay, correct? That's right. Uh, TSA and the American Federation of Government Employees have just started negotiating a full collective bargaining agreement. TSA has had limited collective bargaining since 2011, been able to negotiate things like time and attendance, shift bids, parking and uniforms. This full collective bargaining is another step towards kind of aligning TSA's system with the rest of the federal workforce. They'd be able to negotiate uh, some high priority things like mandatory overtime going forward. I spoke to Administrator Prokoski about that issue a little bit as well. My goal is to have a very good and productive relationship with the bargaining unit and the bargaining unit employees. Uh, and, and that really begins in the negotiations for the collective bargaining agreement. So, so far, very positive. We've made a lot of progress. Uh, I'm hoping in the not too distant future, we're able to sign something. Is there a goal to get there by January of this year? I, year? I, would, I would certainly like to get it done uh, this calendar year, if at all possible. 
Yeah, considering some negotiations in government go on for a year and a half, two years, three years, sometimes even longer than that. If he can get that done, that would be a good, I think, positive development. What else do we need to know, Justin? Yeah, I think the appropriations process is is really the big thing to watch here because TSA is not under Title V and is not under the general schedule wage system. Their pay raises, their, their salaries going forward are going to continue to be subject to the annual appropriations process until something changes. And, you know, you have this pay raise that just happened. Politically, you could see it being pretty bad for any member of Congress to scale that back. But they still have to work out room in the budget to continue these things, this pay raise going forward. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. You got it, Tom. And check out his story and the interview with Mississippi Congressman Benny Thompson. It's all at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, a leading military research unit celebrates a century of work. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. 